Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raju, Senior Fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things jihadist activity and what used to be known as the global war on terror, what we call the long war. Today, I am pleased to be uh, rejoined by my colleague and friend, Caleb Weiss. Caleb is a research fellow at the Bridgeway Foundation, and he also contributes to FDD's Long War Journal. Uh, Caleb is just a, a remarkable uh, sponge on all issues jihad and when i have to when i want to know what's going on particularly in africa i go to caleb but caleb also knows al-qaeda the islamic state and he tracks it in central asia and south asia he knows what's going on in iraq and the in syria and elsewhere so uh caleb is welcome caleb thanks for joining us and uh again thanks as always for your hard work Thank you for having me again. Always glad to be here. Um, I definitely need new hobbies because, I mean, the definition or the outline you just gave of me is like that. That was a real eye opener. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> we all need new hobbies that uh, often to get away from the jihad. Uh, it's, uh, it helps cleanse the mind. Uh, this is such a depressing and uh, grinding topic. I mean, I've been doing this professionally for since 2005, six. Um, it really is a long war. When I decided to name the website The Long War Journal in 2007 and launched it, um, I think even I may have underestimated just how long this war would be. And, um, it, but, uh, you know, I think we, we struck gold and we got lucky on that one. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. No one, listen, and no one more than me would love this to end and me go to look for another job. Um, I, uh, it's, it's, it's a real grind. And unfortunately, the grind means, um, that we're not winning because we've, we've have not defeated our enemies. Um, these groups exist, persist, and some are still achieving success. But today, Caleb and I are going to discuss, um, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Yep. He's still alive. He's not dead. Like some people have, uh, uh, some in our profession have claimed, uh, this, I think it was, what was it? Late 2020 or 2021? Yeah, this was late 2020. 2020, where you had some analysts out there saying based on their sources, authoritatively insisting that he was dead and it was picked up in the counterterrorism community, even though we saw no evidence of, of this. Um, he's since uh, released a couple of, uh, uh, videos and audios, and we're going to discuss two of, two of those. And in one of them, um, in a speech commemorating Osama bin Laden, uh, Zawahiri um, explicitly mentions uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I'm going to read, I'll quote from his speech. Um, we're going to get into more of what he says here. But the first point I want to make is that he's still alive, at least as of February 24th, when Russia launched the invasion of Ukraine. And here's what he said, quote, America is weak in front of our Muslim Ummah if it unites, it being the Ummah and it unites. America is in a state of weakness and decline by the grace of Allah. Here it is after its defeat in Iraq and Afghanistan, after the economic disasters caused by the 9-11 invasions, that would be Al-Qaeda's attacks on the U.S., after the corona pandemic, and after it left its ally Ukraine as prey for the Russians, end quote. So, you know, look, since he's reemerged and those who claimed that uh, Zawahiri was dead now had to backtrack, 
what the the common narrative is. Okay, well, maybe he's alive, but he's a nobody. Um, he's he's not an influential figure in the jihad or even within Al Qaeda. He's you know just as they tried to brand uh, Osama bin Laden as a lion and winner. Um, you know, holed up in a compound in Pakistan, even though he was directing the global jihad. And some helping. still are making that argument too. Yeah, right, right. They're still making these arguments. Um, we see something different. Um, we see Al Qaeda's branches, um, some having great success. Al Qaeda's central leadership, it's still organized. It's still, uh, uh, is pledges fealty to, to Zawahiri. Um, and they're, Following Zawahiri's guidance and um, and, and and orders that come down from top and bottom, we see evidence over time. Caleb, what's your take on this? Uh, you know, why you know why is Al why is Zawahiri still an important figure in jihad? And we'll get into a little bit of what what is the state of Al Qaeda under Zawahiri's leadership. I mean, I think what you said was pretty accurate. I mean, there's still evidence of, of branches. Around the world, still following, you know, his orders or guidelines or commands or you know, other things like that. You know, I think the most striking example of that is the, you know, the Al Quds being Jerusalem will never be Judaized campaign. Um, I think this was in 2020, maybe early 2021, but a couple of years ago, regardless, it was this, you know, whole media series around AQ of that Jerusalem will never be Judaized. This was around when the U.S. embassy was being moved to Jerusalem. Um, and you saw two AQ branches in Africa, that being Al-Shabaab in Somalia and JNIM, or the Group for Support of Islam and Muslims in the Sahel, both doing suicide attacks in the name of that campaign, showing broader coordination, broader you know operational coordination, broader media coordination with Al-Qaeda's central leadership. You know, that doesn't just happen if there isn't some sort of guidelines coming from the top. You know, there's going to be some sort of media, at least media co- cooperation or coordination on that. But I, you know, we know that there's probably more than that. Um, but you also see groups still remaining in the AQ fold. You know, if Zawahiri was really that irrelevant, why would a group like Ansaru, which is Ansaru was this group in Northwest Nigeria um, that was, you know, it existed, you know, 2012 to around 2015. And then there was this period of dormancy. And then it reemerged in the late 2019. And it's since been super active in Northwest Nigeria, but it's openly, you know, loyal to Zawahiri. It's openly loyal to AQIM. If Zawahiri was still, you know, this, this irrelevant old man, uh, and the AQ is this dying brand, why would this group still want to be a part of it? You know, and you see this not only in Africa, but you see this, you know, around the world. You still have groups all over the world that still proclaim their allegiance to, to AQ. And we'll get into some of these as we talk about some of these videos from Zawahiri, but, you know, it's global. Like people still want to follow him, and to me, that's not really something in- indicative of you know an old or relevant man, as some people like to to say he is. Which he is old. I'll give them that argument. Um, but you know, some of the the arguments that we see against AQ, you know, I like to call the AQ mi- minimalists, is that you know these these global branches are concerned about the local. But I, I, I think that's more of a false dichotomy that we as analysts make. And I've said this on the show before of like the jihadists themselves don't make that distinction. Like the local and the global are one and the same. You know, what happens to a Muslim in, in you know, Morocco is going to be the, a crime against Muslims anywhere around the world. You know, Abdul Azam said that, Zawahiri says that, but Bin Laden said that. 
you know, the, the crimes against Muslims anywhere is a crime against Muslims everywhere. And that's how they see it. That's how jihadists see themselves as part of this global fight, even though they may be fighting, you know, the Somali army in southern Somalia, they still see that as a fight of like the same thing that JNIM is doing in Mali, the same thing that, you know, AQAS is doing in, in Afghanistan or Pakistan, you know, same thing that, you know, a group in Syria is doing. It, it, it's all one and the same. And, and to be clear, like AQ, well, yes, they've done major attacks in the West. That's not always been like their main focus. They've always had this idea of being the vanguard force for local Muslim insurgencies. You saw that in the early 90s. You saw that in the mid-90s in Afghanistan, you know, even in Africa. You know, I'm focusing on Africa because that's, you know, obviously my main focus. But even in the early 90s, bin Laden was sending people to East Africa, to Sudan, you know, to Somalia, you know, elsewhere to help train local insurgencies in that region or elsewhere. You know, the GIA helped them, you know, helped the, you know, Eritrean Islamic Jihad helped, you know, Al-Tihad in, in Somalia. You had all of these groups that even in the early 90s were being helped by Al-Qaeda. You know, if they were purely just, you know, focused on attacks in the West, why would they do that? You know, why would they, they still want to help these local groups? You know, it's part of one and the same, you know, and I think that's a point that people like to look over. You know, and another thing, you know, I'm going on a rant, I'm sorry. No, but no, this is your I'm time. going on a huge rant here, but another thing I see all the time is that, you know, the AQ central leadership, because you mentioned that they are still organized. A lot of people like to say they're disorganized or like, you know, there's no cohesive structure or they're dispersed or, you know, there's no quote unquote safe haven. But a few things about that of like, have they have they been centralized? Like, yeah, you had like an organized group in AFPAC, but you also had senior leaders around the world. From its inception, you know, I just released, you know, a, a huge paper on AQIM and JNIM and how it's, you know, historically spread across, you know, northwestern Africa. You know, in the early 2000s, AQ senior leadership sent a a guy named Abu Muhammad Al Yemeni. He was a AQ central, you know, leader by all means. He was sent to Algeria and he perused, you know, what was then called the the Salafist group for preaching and combat, the GSPC, which became AQIM. But he trained, he, he visited their training camps in Algeria and Mali and elsewhere, you know, in the early 2000s, 2002, maybe even a little, little earlier. You know, he, Abu Muhammad al Yemeni was reporting to another senior Al Qaeda leader in Yemen. Even by that time, the AQ central leadership was globally dispersed. It wasn't just all in AFPAC. There were obviously central leaders in Yemen. And, you know, you saw that, that, you know, set up throughout the years. Nasser al Wahashi becoming, you know, the yeah, the general the the general manager who was, you know, a caps, you know, emir for for a while. Caleb, if I can in, in, interrupt you here for a yeah. second, this was done as a not just because Al Qaeda was decentralizing its leadership, but as a redundancy because of the drone campaign where Al Qaeda had its leadership concert uh, concentrated in um, in Pakistan's tribal areas and right. some areas in Afghanistan, so. Having the head of AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Wahishi is the best example of this. Um, but, um, and I, I'm drawing a blank on the last AQIM leader. Um, but he was also by the French said to be Al-Qaeda's third in command. Wahishi was the AQAP leader, was the, um, Al-Qaeda's general manager, which is considered to be a number three position as well. So this is part of, part of its, its efforts to keep its leadership. In other theaters, it's a protection um, 
uh, you know, or it's an operational security for it. Right. And there's, I mean, there's evidence of this going back at least 20 years. Absolutely is. So it's historically a precedent, but yet we're going to say that, you know, it's relatively new and that's what causes AQ to be weak now. But that's, that's not the case, obviously. You know, in this, this argument of safe haven, of like, you know, AQ doesn't have, you know, the safe haven like it did in, you know, pre 9 11 Afghanistan, but what does safe haven even mean? I mean, you could find evidence of that in Africa, for instance, like, by anyone's definition of a safe haven of where, you know, terrorist leaders can safely congregate, there would be places of the Sahel that would be like that. There's places in Somalia that would be like that. There's, there's still places in APAC that would be like that. Yeah, Afghanistan so what is, what is, is, so what is that even mean? Al-Qaeda, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, there is Al- – we know Al-Qaeda leadership has migrated back to Afghanistan, and, and U.S. intelligence that – people that I speak to believe that Zawahiri is there. Right. I mean, what does that even mean? You know, you have safe havens around the world with a decentralized command structure. Yeah, but I don't see that as a weakness of AQ. I see that as an organizational strength. That's an organization built for resilience. You know, that's exactly what that is. I just think it's kind of the arguments or the the arguments that the minimalists are making is essentially one of you're willingly reducing the threat in order to A, move on to a different threat. Or B, to have some sorts of, of sense of mission accomplishment, right? That's the way I see it. I mean, it could be wrong, and I'm happy to be to be wrong on that. But that's to me of what I see happening with these broader arguments. The the, the people that generally make that argument, and in, in from what I, they're the ones who advocate for disengaging in the fight against the jihadists, they've used the Al Qaeda, the localization, as you you had noted. Um, as evidence, see, Al-Qaeda just cares about the local. But remember, they made the same arguments against the Islamic State, and that didn't go very well. Um, and it's the same goes for Al-Qaeda, as you said. I mean, Al-Qaeda's goal is to establish a global caliphate. That's its goal, or reestablish the – Right, it's, it's but how are you going to do that? You're going to work through local means, right? Exactly. You're going to have emir- to. Build it emirate by emirate. The only – look, I realize there's more to it, the difference between the Islamic State and, and Al-Qaeda. But fundamentally, the big difference is Al-Qaeda says – be patient and don't declare the caliphate until you could defend it. And the Islamic State's version is a caliphate now, you know, with an exclamation point. AQs is all about the public support, which is why they go to these great links to work within the local. That's an operational model. That's not something that, you know, is, is that's happening and weakening the central structure. That's a direct, you know, MO of AQ. And and there's another, uh, a real analytical problem here. The idea that these branches are independent or affiliates, as they're called, Al Qaeda doesn't refer don't doesn't refer them to them as their affiliates or branches. I, I'm searching. They do for say this. branches, Farah, which is in Arabic does mean branch. So they do call them branches. Which the argument that like Longwood Journal has historically made is that using the term affiliates draws some sort of unnecessary distance between yes. the groups when the AQ central leadership itself sees them as just an extension of themselves. Yeah. They they used to refer to this as their theaters. Well, um, yeah. I was digging and I know this is – I remember writing this up probably 14 years ago. But that's how Al-Qaeda General Command referred to AQAP and AQIM and they viewed them as their military commands or their leadership commands in the theaters of operation. And I think when you put it, when you understand it like that, you know, then this idea that there's distance between core, which I hate that term, Al-Qaeda uses general command, and the theaters or branches, 
then it makes more sense. And then, but unfortunately, people that are arguing for the distance for the localization have always been arguing because you can't disengage with the fight against Al Qaeda if it has a global, you know, a cohesive global organization that is having success in in multiple theaters and also having problems in multiple theaters as well. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, just because I'm saying that you know these things are are operationally good for AQ doesn't mean that they're you know by you know far and large successful in all these all these theaters because they, they do face problems. I mean, otherwise, the Islamic State would be what it is if they weren't having problems. The Islamic yeah. State being the literally the outgrowth from AQ because of problems. Yeah, the the the. Al-Qaeda's biggest problem is, in my opinion, the Islamic State, because it challenges yeah. its, you know, you have a division of in within the jihad, which is something they've always opposed, right? That's the GIA, all the problems that they had in Algeria. I mean, that was written. Syria, that, I mean, that was Wahri's main messages for years in, in Syria to get all groups together. Yep. And that, to me, was, that was, you know, but, you know, and again, we can't build a time machine. And no, but would Zaw- would would um, Osama bin Laden be able to handle that any better than Zawahiri did? We don't know. I suspect there was o- there's always tension between the uh, the Islam when it, previously it was the Islamic State in Iraq and Al Qaeda's central leadership, and you know we've intercepted messages of uh, you know them as you know the central leadership asking them not to target the Shia. And, you know, Islamic State or Al-Qaeda in Iraq's response was, look, this is a way for us. We, this is something we need to do. This is, this is driving recruits. So like there was a push and pull, but they never weren't injected from the group until the, until that leadership dispute between Baghdadi and Zawahiri was just irreconcilable. I mean, it would be interesting. You know, again, we can't build the time machine. Right. I mean, you're, I can see both sides. I mean, you're going to have people argue that bin Laden was more charismatic and which that might be true. Doesn't necessarily mean Zawahiri is any worse of a leader. I mean, you still have groups that are still vehemently loyal to Zawahiri, which, again, not indicative of a bad leader. Yeah, and you know, another thing on his leadership, you know, people say he's boring, he's this and that. You know, maybe to us as Westerners, but what about to his followers? You know, they have a different vision of what a leader is. Right. I mean, this is an important point for both of the videos we're discussing later. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about this in a, the, the second video we're going to talk about. But I think that's that's probably the most important part is that, you know, these videos aren't necessarily made for us. They're not made for us. That's exactly right, Caleb. You nailed it. This is for their followers and they resonate. Go for it. Sorry. No, that's it. Like, I, I want to save this argument for the next video because I think it has more more punch for that one. But that's exactly it is like these videos are they're made for people within that mindset. They're made for people who are, you know, may, might be willing to jump into that mindset. They're not made for us Westerners. They're made exactly for the people who are willing to go down that, that ideological or, you know, religiously extreme, you know, path. And that's exactly what they are. Absolutely. Let's move on. And yeah, let's, let's uh, remind me to touch back on that point, Caleb, because it's a, it's a key one. It's one that really bothers me. I think it's a lot of the analysis of, of, in my estimation, in the counterterrorism field is it's from our perspective. But I think what you and I and Tom and, and some uh, select others have done well is looked at it from their perspective. That's how we had success in analyzing these groups. 
because you have to understand your enemy. You don't, we can't, we don't, we can't expect them to operate, to act, to speak as we would. And like the only point I can, I concede on Swahiri's videos is that, you know, they are boring. Absolutely. You know, they are, they're not, they're not like the Islamic state flashy videos or, you know, quick speeches from their spokesmen or, you know, when, when their caliphs were releasing statements, audio statements, you know, those, but, you know, they are long, hour-long treatises of, you know, important ideological or religious, you know, frameworks that AQ has to lay down to justify their operations. But, you know, the, they are boring, and I'll give them that. And for, you know, as speaking as a millennial myself, uh, I understand other, you know, probably millennial jihadists or Gen, Gen Z jihadists are definitely not <laughs> attracted to the long treatises as much as, you know, the the hyper-violence of the Islamic State. Absolutely. And, you know, the it's in... This particular um, video that we're talk- talking about from Zawahiri, we don't, look, I always say he's the Fidel Castro of jihadists, you know. You, you can wind him up and he'll go all day. But this was actually a pretty short speech by him. I, I forget how long it was, but reading it, it was like two pages. It was pretty, you know, so um, sometimes he does he does get his messaging, you know, a little bit more concise. And this actually is uh, an example of that. If I were, if I were, you know, AQ central leadership, I would probably hire like a Gen Gen Z or millennial, you know, media guy. But you know, yeah, that's I, just like, me. That's just me. I mean, look, like Abu Yahi Al Libby. He was, if he was still alive, he would be that guy. He was the one, the up and coming young guy who's in detention and in, in um, at Bagram. Um, and, you know, escaped and then he became Al Qaeda's general manager, you know, so that's where the drone campaign was effective in getting rid of some guys like that. The Al Qaeda relied on, uh, uh, Abdullah Zam Amriki, who was just a hot mess because they thought he understood America, but he didn't. But someone like Abu Yahi Al Libby was more of a firebrand, but could, you know, I think he spoke more to an, uh, a better generation or a young, better. Yeah. A younger generation of a potential. You said host. it right the first time. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't agree. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm going to move on to uh, – we'll get into his uh, speech. And I, 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 I'm not going to uh, requote it. But he – Zawahiri said America is, is weak because, you know, again, we withdrew from Iraq. We withdrew from Afghanistan. And then, you know, he mentions the attack on 9-11 and the coronavirus and economic problems and, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine. Uh, what's your thought about that, Caleb? Is is he right? Does you know is from if you're a jihadist, do you look at as America as being the strong horse, as Osama bin Laden said, or the weak horse after 21 years of 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 war? I mean, I'll give you my take in the mindset of a jihadist, and then my actual take. So, in the mindset of the jihadist, I think he is right. Of if you're a jihadist, you're going to see the American retreat from Iraq. You're going to see the American retreat from from Afghanistan. Uh, you know, troops are going back into Somalia. You know, when Trump was in office, troops were pulled out of Somalia. You saw America in retreat. To me, I, I think that you know, if I were a jihadist, I would see that as one as a great success for our cause. Because, you know, the, the great Satan is leaving these these fields. They're leaving you know places where they're killing the Muslims. You know, to me, I, I think in, in that respect, he probably is correct. Of if you were a jihadist, you're definitely going to see these retreats or withdrawals as a success. Um, but speaking as like me, Caleb, as a normal person, uh, I don't know. I think that's hard to say. I think that you know, in one respect, I, it is kind of correct. Of 
weaving these areas in defeat, which let's, let's be honest, that's what they were, does weave us in a weaker state. Um, you know, do you, you do see other nation states testing the US, Russia and China being the big two, to see what they can do. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I don't want to say that I agree with Swahiri, but to an extent, I think there is some kernel of truth there of that we are now in a weaker state. Yeah, I, I I have to agree with him, not to the extreme, but you know, like you said, as a jihadist, you certainly you look at particularly the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the the drawdown in posture. You have you have um, Muslim countries in in the Middle East uh, starting to question the U.S. commitment. You know, that's something they are certainly monitoring. We know they monitor the media reports. You know. I do think it it can that they may underestimate the West that we still have capabilities to hit them and hit them hard. Yeah, but I, the, I don't want to make it seem like I was implying that we no didn't. no. I, I just think in general of our our grand you know posture or stature in the world, yeah, definitely be seen as you know lacking a little bit of of I don't want to say legitimacy, but you know at least I can't even think of the word. It's just like it. We left in such a disgrace in Afghanistan of that you, we got to be seen as weaker than what we were. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you can't come to any other conclusion. I mean, but they, I do think they underestimate that the U.S. can hit, can hit. Well, actually, I suspect they know it. But at the end of the day, you know, wars are, are battles of wills, and we've shown to have not have the will to see these th- things through. We see these fights in terms of election cycles, and they see these fights in terms of decades and generations. And um, when you're committed to a cause like they are, um, it's, you know, they have an advantage. So, you know, again, I'm not going all in and saying, you know, we are spent, broken, and, you know, easily defeated. But when it comes to engaging in this war, engaging on their on their ground and on their terms, we've uh, shown a lack of commitment. I mean, what's the Mullah Omar quote? The you have the watches, we have the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it it and you know he said in an interview to Voice of America, I want to say it was about two, three weeks after nine eleven, you know, he said, You look, you know, America thinks they'll win and we believe that, you know, God is on all is on our side and, and we're gonna win and we're gonna find out who's who's right. We found out. Um you know, so that goes a long way. The perceptions and the realities of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, to me, you know, allows Zawahiri to say something like this. And I can't easily dismiss it as just jihadist propaganda. It had, you know, sometimes they're right. Um, again, may not be as right as he thinks it is. It, we may not be as weak as we think he, uh, as he thinks we are, but we do not look like, you know, bin Laden's, you know, strong horse here. All right, next uh, issue. So um, Zawahiri notes one of uh, Osama bin Laden's great – he talks about the the greatest deeds of bin Laden. Um, And he says – I'll quote from it. He says, one of the greatest deeds of Osama bin Laden revolves around his acting on the magnificent phrase of Sheikh Abdullah Azam. Jihad has been an individual duty since the fall of Al-Andalus, Muslim-occupied Spain. Um, is he correct, Caleb? Is this uh, one of Bin Laden's greatest achievements? I think, in terms of, of you know actual attacks on the West, 
yeah, I mean, this is the concept of the individual jihad, the lone jihad, or, you know, the quote-unquote lone wolf attacks, which are typically anything but, but that's a separate podcast. Oh, yeah, but, it is. Uh, you know, we've seen those, you know, at least, what, since 2009, the underwear bomber, you know, which wasn't necessarily lone wolf that was coordinated with ACAP, but still of like these these individual actors in the West trying to conduct attacks, which some have been successful, some haven't been, some have been thwarted, uh, thankfully thwarted, but some have gotten through. So the Fort Hood shooting, um, you know, the, probably the biggest one, the Pensacola attack a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I think this is something, or I guess in Europe, you know, the, the Charlie Hebdo. Charlie attacks. Hebdo was the one that was yeah. coming to my mind. Yeah, was yeah. You know, I think that you know, in that respect, yeah, I think that's probably one of the the greatest things that AQ has ever done, which has led, you know, to 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 IS, you know, looking at that model and expanding on it to to you know significant success. Um, you know, we saw that again. Other French attacks, we saw that you know in Brussels elsewhere. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is definitely one of Bin Laden's great successes. Um, and this is something that AQ, not just Swahiri, but other AQ branches, you know, celebrate all the time. Uh, you know, Shabab just recently celebrated these lone wolf attacks. Um, you know, there was this, this was a video which covered it at Longwood Journal, but there was a video about like Shabab's assassination unit in, in Mogadishu, but half of the video was dedicated to these lone wolf actors in the West. You know, openly stating, you know, that, that these are, you know, what Muslims should strive for in the West is these, these attacks. You know, so, you know, in that degree, which just to, to go on a brief tangent of what we were discussing earlier, this is also some sign of, at least to the very least, media coordination between Al-Qaeda branches and, and the the central central leadership of, we're going to talk about, you know, attacks in the West. You should probably highlight that as well, because that's what it seems like. You know, Shabab did. They didn't need to talk about these attacks in the West, but they did. Um, I know that was a that was a weird tangent, but my overall point is yes. Like this is something that that Al Qaeda in general, you know, vehemently supports. They celebrate it all the time, and it's still ongoing. Like the it, it's really hard to combat these one wolf attacks. You know, quote unquote one wolf attacks. You know, and it's something that we'll probably still face. Yeah, and I think you you know the point you made about the uh, the Islamic State taking that and running with it. You know, look, from Al-Qaeda's perspective, you know, they may not be happy that it was conducted by its adversary. Um, however, the fact that these attacks are happening, they, you know, I, I still think that's it is a legacy of Osama bin Laden. One uh, of the next deeds, he, he, you know, deeds, I'm putting them in quotes. He said, you know, I'll just, again, I'll quote from it. It says, it was, this is our hero, he quote. And among his great deeds was his eagerness to unite the Muslims and resist their division, fragmentation, and separation. I do think Al Qaeda has, um, you know, with the the, cre- the the expansion of its branches or theaters and um, igniting insurgencies, and you know, look, the insurgencies, the jihadist insurgencies that exist today. Then you look at pre nine eleven. I mean, the jihad, you know, to make a pun, has exploded across Africa and, and the Middle East and in parts of uh, South and Central Asia. But you know, I, I, you know, I deal, you know, he, Bin Laden, and then Zawahiri weren't able to keep the jihad united, and with the rise of the Islamic State. What's your, what's your thoughts on this, Caleb? No, that's that's exactly it. Like on one hand, like yeah, like there's there's been you know still 
group cohesion across much of the world. But this is also the main facet of where AQ has failed, like uh, the Islamic State being their greatest failure to to keep them in line. So I, I don't think Zawahiri is is right on this one. I think he's overlook conveniently overlooking that little that little mishap. Yeah, the, the you know the split between Al Qaeda and the Islamic State is Al Qaeda's greatest defeat. The irony in that, right? Of all of the Bin Laden being killed, hey, you know, look, I'd argue it took him ten years to get him, and then he was sheltering in our quote unquote ally, you know, the Pakistan's our friends. Um, living outside their, their, basically their, um, version of West Point, which is a, uh, uh, what they call a cantonment, which is a, basically a, a closed city. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, all the leaders killed in Afghanistan, the fall of the Taliban in 2001, 2002, um, the ebb and flows in, in Yemen and, in Somalia, where they took a territory and then lost it and took it again and lost it. Of all of those, I look at the, 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 the rise of the Islamic State, the split, um, in the, in the jihad. Um, to me, that was Al Qaeda's greatest defeat in all these years. Yep. Absolutely. I, that's, that's exactly what I would say. I mean, you know, he can argue though that <laughs> while bin Laden was alive, they were unit, united and they were resisting division and fragmentation. But we saw evidence of the, of the, um, I mean, the, you said this earlier. The uh, strife between the, the you know, right. Al Qaeda in Iraq and and these and like AQI. AQI was historically their most you know problematic branch. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I, I really, I would, I just wish I can, you know, get that alternate reality up and see how how Zawa, or um, how Bin Laden would have handled that if he could have handled that. I I'm of the mind that that split was inevitable at some point, given the way that the success that the Islamic State had in, um, well, it was still Al-Qaeda, it was having in Syria at that time. They were just, I think they were smelling themselves at that point and then decided, you know, yeah, it was worth confronting the the global, global leadership. I mean, look, it was happening under Zawahiri's leadership. I'm sorry, under bin Laden's leadership at that time. So, well, the the, the kernels of it, anyway. Um, all right, we'll move on to the next one here. Again, I'm going to quote Zawahiri. He says, uh, quote, Osama bin Laden pointed out the practical way to liberate Palestine and every occupied Muslim land, and that is by striking the head to force them to withdraw and negotiate. Uh, what's your take on this? Um, a little bit of truth there, a little bit of little uh, uh, untruths in there. What do, you, what do you think, Caleb? I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, obviously, it's true in Afghanistan of where the America was forced to withdraw. They were forced to negotiate with with the Taliban. Um, obviously, Palestine is a whole other issue in and of itself that I don't necessarily want to get into. But I, I don't think that's that's true in Palestine. Um, I think I'm gonna, real quick on that. I think this is a failure of Al Qaeda. Is, is to really, if there was a time there in the late 2000s, early 2010s, where they were, you had some small groups that were looked to be a nucleus of a Al Qaeda, um, branch forming in, in the Palestinian territories. But it went up against Hamas and the, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the Palestinian right, Authority, mean- which were entrenched and organized and, 
we're not going to have any of that. So I think I always thought Al Qaeda's messaging on Palestinian on the Palestinian issue, Israel Palestine issue, has been one of of hopefulness, but not one of practicality. I think no, they just I, the card the cards are stacked against them in that one. No, I mean I certainly don't know as much as our colleague Joe uh, Joe Trisman, but there is a small group in Gaza still called Jaysh Uma, which proclaims yeah to be like at least AQ affiliated. I don't think it's ever came out and directly stated like Ansaru in Nigeria that, you know, that we are Al Qaeda, but you know, they, they share all AQ's propaganda. They send congratulations to AQ. They, they, you know, send condolences when AQ leaders dies, you know, it's very clear indication that they are at least within the network. Um, but they're small, they're a small group. Um, other AQ groups or AQ, you know, align groups in Gaza have been, like you said, taken out by Hamas, um, or you know, switch sides to to IS and either aid itself alive by members going to Syria or again being taken out by Hamas. You know, so AQ has definitely kind of pretty much failed uh, in their attempts to set up anything in, in Palestine. Um, obviously, that could change in the future, but it doesn't seem likely with with the stranglehold that Hamas is over Gaza, especially. And then the West Bank, I think that's more necessarily related to to you know Palestine issues in general, not you know, global jihad uh, could be wrong. Again, this is a question more for Joe, um, which by the way, shout out to Joe, everyone follow him. Yeah. Uh, Joe Trusman, why follow him guys. Um, but I, I think the, the bigger point here with, with this quote is the negotiate. This is, this is absolutely the, the key word in this, this whole long sentence of, you know, some have stated, you know, some analysts stated that, you know, negotiations hurt AQ's brand, but how, they 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 want negotiations. They do negotiate negotiations all the time. They negotiated with with Mauritania in, in the early 2010s or late 2000s to have some sort of ceasefire in return for Mauritania not attacking them. Uh, you know they, they reportedly did the same in Burkina Faso under the the old regime of, of Blaise Compaoré, um, who was who was ousted in 2014. Um, you know, you have current deals in central Mali, you know, you have AQ supporting the Taliban's process in Afghanistan. You know, there was a recent thing just, just today of the Al-Qaeda linked, you know, Haqqani network, which it's, it's leader Sirajuddin Haqqani is also a dual-headed AQ leader of, of brokering talks between Pakistan and, and the Afghan Taliban. You know, this is something that, that AQ does all the time. Uh, you know, it might detract, you know, more hardline members into IS or to elsewhere who, you know, you don't want to do negotiations. But by and large, if, if AQ can negotiate in a way that will put them on top or leave them in a better position or get them essentially what they want, which has kind of been the case in central Mali, they'll do it. They don't have a problem with it. You know, they're, they're, let me be clear, they're not negotiating good faith or definitely not negotiating to have any sort of, you know, quote unquote peace. They're not negotiating, you know, in a sense that, you know, you and I might think of negotiations of, you know, kind of, you know, both sides make concessions to have some sort of, you know, mutually agreeable, you know, agreement. That's not the case here. AQ is going to negotiate for something that's going to put them on top. But negotiations in general, they don't see as a bad thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, Afghanistan was case in point. We know. That Al Qaeda supported those negotiations and they were very supportive of the Taliban's negotiations because they believed it would lead to the U.S. withdrawal. Caleb, there's a, you had mentioned negotiates the key word. There's a second key word and that's in Zawahiri's statement and or key phrase, the practical way, right? Al Qaeda is practical. They will negotiate 
if necessary. Again, this is the big, one of the biggest difference between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Islamic State's never going to negotiate uh, or, or approve of negotiations or have one of its, you know, a group that it works with negotiate. And Al-Qaeda recognizes it. Um, and like you, you would perfectly know that Al-Qaeda supported the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan's negotiations back in 2007 that put the, the TTP in control of significant portions of, of northern Pakistan. We know that because we saw that in the bin Laden files. Um, they've negotiated with the Iranians to, uh, to facilitate, um, a release of an Iranian diplomat who was being held in Pakistan, um, in exchange for some, you know, some better concessions for its leaders who were sheltering in Iran and uh, somewhere, you know, the, I don't want to get into that whole thing, but loose detention. They wanted, but Al Qaeda wanted a really um, greater freedom of movement for its its leadership that was based inside of Iran. So the the practicality there is 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 that's what allows them to negotiate. Right. I mean, this could be something in the future that does come back to bite them in the ass of of supporters who don't want to negotiate of defecting these on them in, in Syria. Was this? Yeah. They were too clever by half. They were trying to work with the various groups like internal negotiations between jihadist movements and and then the free syrian army and then do we work with let turkey work with us that's what led to a lot of the problems was the practicalities i think it's already yeah, has I mean, hurt them so it's it's a mixed bag it gets you afghanistan but it caused you problems in iraq and syria right. really and, caused and them to lose their Iraq there's there's one caveat i guess with this this potential blowback between their supporters is that like we know they've they've historically done this for for over a decade, longer if not. Yeah, definitely um, longer. I would say for so. Yeah. If we were going to see you know these large scale defections because of negotiations, not necessarily because of IS in general of what happened with that split or what happened in Syria, but specifically because of negotiations, I would suspect we would have already seen these large scale negotiate defections that would have you know really hampered their 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 capabilities in these specific regions. Um, like in Mali, like we didn't really see too many large scale defections specifically because of negotiations. Now there were defections to IS in, in Mali for other reasons, uh, but negotiations doesn't seem to be this, this large scale movement to the, to defect away from AQ. Um, but you know, that could change, you know, the always could change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, and, and, and as they have success, with negotiations, Afghanistan, this is what made it the Afghanistan so dangerous, right? Um, the Taliban showed that you can use the process. You know, what happened in like Mauritania and Mali, a lot of that's under the covers, right? And, and you know, I think the jihadists are aware of what's happening, but Afghanistan, you know, that's an entire country that went under jihadist control. It was visible. It was out in the open for everyone to see for years. And, you know, the Taliban have an emirate and the Islamic State does not. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have its physical caliphate and it controls. I can't think of any, you know, uh, some places in, in Africa, obviously, but it's not controlling a state like the Taliban does. And of course, of course, Al Qaeda isn't controlling Afghanistan, but we know Al Qaeda and the Taliban are inextricably linked and um, Al Qaeda supported that Taliban takeover. As you know, obviously things could change, but as of you know May 2022, I don't see negotiations as hurting the AQ brand. I think any of that that would that hurt Al Qaeda's brand, it's already happened. 
right? The, I think the if bulk it was going of, to, it's already done. Yeah. It's right. The, the bulk of that has already. That was really the Iraq Syria 2013, 14, 15 timeframe when people were p- choosing sides. I think they now chose sides. And I'm sure, it happened in Afghanistan with like ISK. There was probably some dudes who probably didn't support AQ support of the, the process, but that's already happened. Right. Exactly. And. Um, you know, what it may turn off is future, current and future recruits, but that's not breaking off of leadership, you know, like the I am Islamic movement, Uzbekistan breaking off from the town. But then again, that was, wasn't related to negotiations. That was primarily largely over the Taliban hiding, um, the death of its emir. So right. of I mean, Omar, I mean, those things thing. hurt Al Qaeda and the Taliban and, and these groups far I mean, more than anything. The thing with that is, though, is like if you're going to lose recruits over negotiations, you're going to be able to gain other recruits for a myriad of other reasons. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you and to me, if as like, look, we recognize, you know, this is what we do. If it, it works to our advantage, we're going to do it. I mean, look, if you know, again, you and I aren't wired like your your red meat, bloodthirsty jihadist. But if I was to be a jihadist, I'd want to be with the thinking man's jihadist. I think they got a better chance. Um, you know, it might not appeal to the red meat jihadists, but then again, no, I mean, if you have obviously choice, doesn't appeal to everyone. Obviously, there are jihadists out there who want that that really, really hyper violent that hyper violent brand, and you just see that you know, especially in Africa with new branches. But yeah, and and with the Islamic State losing its physical caliphate because of its actions, how much did that affect their recruiting? I, you know, again, I think that at the end of the day, this all probably comes out in a wash. Or, or it might tilt to one side. Ebb and flow as well. I, I think it's an ebb and flow of like, yeah, there'll be – you're going to lose people because of negotiations or whatever, but it's probably by and large already happened. Um, but you'll gain new recruits for other reasons, and that could – you know, that whole dynamic could change within the next five years. Exactly. Okay, moving on to the next video. This was an interesting one by Al-Qaeda. It, um, it isn't Zawahiri um, – a speech by Zawahiri alone. It's a, it's a production where Zawahiri is quoted within there. But basically he, um, what they're, what Al Qaeda is saying here is that uh, there are a lot of similarities between the jihad in Kashmir and the situation in, you know, the, Is- the Israel Palestinian situation. They go down a history of, you know, the formation of, of the state of Israel and the form and how, you know, Kashmir was treated by the United Nations. Um, but there's a couple of interesting things in here that we want to highlight. Um, Al- Al-Qaeda seems to be, or we predicted this, by the way. We knew that w- once the Taliban won in Afghanistan, that the um, Al-Qaeda would reprioritize the jihad in Kashmir. Because what you had happening was a lot of Kashmiri and pa- jihadists or Pakistani jihadist groups that were hot on waging jihad in um, Kashmir. Um, were focusing a lot of their efforts inside of Afghanistan. They they regroup, they regrouped in Afghanistan to help the Taliban uh, achieve its victory. We know groups like Harkar to Mujahideen and Lashkar Taiba and uh, uh, um, the alphabet soup of Pakistani jihadist groups that fight in Kashmir, um, but are still supportive or, or allies with Al Qaeda with the Taliban. They recognized it was important to get a win there. And now, you know, obviously they're going to want payback for that. They're going to want their, their cause to be supported. And it is a cause supported by Al Qaeda. It's also a cause, uh, support. Um, it's also a cause supported by the Taliban. Um, and in this, uh, in this video, 
they're not calling just for jihad in, in Kashmir, but in the whole of India. So I'll read you. This is a quote from Zawahiri. Uh, here we go. Oh, our people in Kashmir, your battle is the battle of the entire Muslim Ummah. Your theater is not just Kashmir, but the entire Indian subcontinent. So prepare yourselves for bleeding your enemies to death in the entire subcontinent. So Al-Qaeda is saying not just Kashmir, but throughout all of India, you should reinitiate attacks. And if you recall in the 2000s and early to mid 2010s, there was significant terrorist attacks by um, uh, a group called the Indian Mujahideen, which really was just a a branding of the of Pakistani jihadist groups that gave them some plausible deniability. It really was mostly Lashkari Taiba, but other groups allied with it. Al Qaeda had a role in it as well. Um, they were launching suicide attacks on trains and other infrastructure, very deadly suicide attacks um, throughout India. Um, Indian um, security forces and intelligence really have tamped down on this. Uh, they have a very interesting method of. Uh, of uh, dealing with this problem. Um, I'll discuss that another day. Um, and it's, it's not kinetic. And that's, what's interesting about it. But, um, you know, the narrative that I'm going to also read you um, what he, what the narrator to the video here had said, you know, and this gets back to us predicting what, what this happened. It says the best example for you to continue your, your journey on the path of jihad and martyrdom until cow worshipers are defeated. Just as your brothers in Afghanistan defeated the cowboys in an epic war that lasted two decades. So again, they're saying, you know, the narr- both Zawahiri and narr- the narrator are saying, we had success in Afghanistan. Now it's time to bring the jihad into, into India. Um, Caleb, what are your, uh, any initial thoughts on this? Uh, I think the main one, uh, you know, looking at his quote about, you know, your battle is the battle of the entire Muslim Ummah. You know, that's, that's, Swahri putting Al Qaeda's fight within, you know, the legit the religious framework of of Islam. There's a famous, you know, hadith or saying of the Prophet Muhammad that talks about this this epic giant battle between the Muslims and non-Muslims and the Indians of continent, and that the Muslims will be victorious. That's what Zawahiri is referring to. Literally, that's what he's referring to, and he's putting AQ's whole, you know, ideology or whole, you know, strategy in the Indian subcontinent. Within that religious framework, you know, and that this gets back to what we were talking about earlier of like these videos aren't made for us. This is a case in point. This video is not for us. This video is for for Muslims. This video is for people who want to see that fight in a religi- you know re- religiously legitimate way. And Zawahri is providing that. Yeah, it's it really is. That's what we have to remember. A lot of these videos. They, they, I, I know we've said it numerous times. But, you know, know who the audience is. It's very obvious when these videos are pointed at us. Um, and it's not as obvious. Well, I mean, I think it's obvious to you and I and, and those of us who, you know, look at this on, on a regular basis and have an open mind. But it's not, it's not so obvious. Like, again, this message, you know, in that video, he's calling on Indian, uh, the narrator is calling on Indian Muslims to join that jihad, to, to, to rise up against the Indians. So they're trying to recruit. From, I mean, India has what I believe the first or second, lar- I think it's the second largest Muslim population on the planet. It's somewhere around 190 or 200 million. It's like, I think Indonesia is the first, if I recall. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, send me an email if so. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this is definitely, it, it, it's, it's a powerful message that they're sending to potential recruits or those disaffected with, uh, you know, in the situation in Kashmir. 
Um, he's t- oh, they're literally telling these Muslims that if you want to, you know, follow the the hadith, the sayings of the Prophet, you have to join us. This and this is the other part of uh, I think this is you know they're making religious justifications for their actions. The the common view of Al Qaeda, particular you know, is that you know they're just bloodthirsty. They want to conduct terror attacks. No, they want to restore the caliphate and impose their version of Sharia. So they're making religious justifications in order to to, to wage jihad. That's it's it's that simple, and it's it's effective to those who are susceptible to that type of message. And it's also not subtle messaging. This isn't the, the second point I want to make with this is that that prophetic battle from from the Prophet Muhammad is is called in Arabic Ghaswat al-Hind or like the the battle of, of al-Hind al-Hind being the Arabic word for the Indian subcontinent. Well, AQ created a group in 2017 called Ansar Ghaswat al-Hind where the helpers or partisans of that battle it's literally a, you know, AQ's branch in Kashmir set up again in 2017. I believe it was a splinter of Hizbullah Mujahideen, which is another jihadist group operating in Kashmir. Is, uh, you know, uh, a friend of Al Qaeda. Um, this is, you know, lives openly in Islamabad, supported by the Pakistani establishment or deep state, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Hizbullah Mujahideen may as well be Al Qaeda. So you had like an official Al-Qaeda splinter from Hezbollah Mujahideen that made it official that we are AQ in Kashmir. Um, again, Ansar Ghazwato Hind, which I believe is still active. I believe they claimed an attack earlier this year um, in, in India uh, that Indian authorities, I think, if I remember correctly, claimed that it wasn't legit. But you know who knows if it actually was. Regardless, AQ has this group that, that its name itself harkens back to the Hadith, which gets back to this wider you know religious legitimacy argument that we're making here is like they see this as part of that 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 prophecy or that 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 saying of muhammad which is supposed to you know to to incite the the local muslims into being like you know this is something we should support hence the ansar part of the the name or the helpers or partisans of that battle yeah yeah it's a, a I, I you know indian officials that i spoke to um think they have a good handle on this and i would my argument to them was, yeah, because of Afghanistan looks pretty good right now. Or Afghanistan is, is basically the sponge that was absorbing a lot of the, the energy of these groups. But my argument back to them was wait till Afghanistan's over. Um, wait till these groups consolidate. And then I think you're going to see bleed back. You see a bleed back into the fight. I mean, Kashmir is the natural, um, uh, the flashpoint for this. But, you know, as we saw with the, that the Indian Mujahideen, again, back in the 2000s, early 2010s, you know, they were able to carry out some very high profile, very successful attacks that really rattled the, the Indian state. Right. So, and here you have AQ trying to incite something similar. Yep. They're trying to get it back. I tell, um, so, the answer goes what I'll hint. Um, had a string of leaders uh, who were killed. Tell us a little bit about that, Caleb. I know you followed that. Uh, just tell tell us about how its leaders, some of the challenges right. it faced. Uh, so, I mean, it was founded by this guy named Zakir Musa, which Zakir Musa was, you know, a prominent commander in Hezbollah Mujahideen who, you know, wanted to be more closely aligned with Sawahiri. He wanted to be more closely aligned with the AQ, you know, network. So he founded his own group, um, made it very clear that he was, you know, loyal to Zawahiri, Um AQ propaganda, global propaganda, you know, 
advertised the group, you know, with every statement, with every video it put out. Um, so he was the leader from 2017 to 2019. He was killed in an Indian military operation. Um, since then, you know, AGH or Ansar Gazwatohind has gone through a series of leaders. Um, I don't think any of them are quite as prominent as what Zakir Musa was. Um, but the point point is, even despite all these leadership losses, they're still around. Um, they are still saying that they are active in, in Kashmir. Um, so if you know AQ is successful in you know reinciting Muslims for this cause, it's going to go through that group. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, and, and the question is like, where does AGH fit in the wider AQIS hierarchy? Which this is my question for you. You follow that more closely than I do. Of, well, I mean, obviously they they would be part of AQIS, right? Yeah, they. Uh, my understanding is they are part of Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, um, as is configured. But I've never seen a statement of they have separate media than AQIS too. So I don't know. Yeah, it. I mean, it. I, it's kind. Of, I always. I wonder if it's like JNIM and and AQIM like and sub branch of yeah, of just the, I, you know that that's sort of given the latitude to. Do it, do its own thing, and there's another part here too, right? Is the Pakistani jihadist groups, the Lashkar Taibas and Hezbollah Mujahideen, Harkat Mujahideen, and all these other groups that um, like to fight. Now, what Al Qaeda typically does is um, it takes members of these groups and allows and, and brings them in. So, how much um, latitude these groups like to fight on their own, and there's reasons for that. They get the open support of the Pakistani state, or sometimes the quiet support of the Pakistani state. Um, whereas Al Qaeda, that's sort of a bridge too far. But that's part of. But the Pakistani state knows what's happening with groups like Ansar al Hind. They don't like the. There's a the conflict between the Pakistani state and and Ghazwat Ansar al Hind be, only because not because. They want to wage jihad in Kashmir. It's because they're, they don't answer to the Pakistani state like Lashkar Taiba and other groups do. And, um, you know, look, we discussed that, um, uh, a little bit that, you know, once the consolidation happened, that, uh, Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and Al, um, the Pakistani groups are going to need new theaters. Caleb, talk a little bit about, um, what are the challenges to this, um, particularly right. from the Islamic State Khorasan province? Right. I mean, it's, it's not just the Pakistani groups. It, it, it's also like the, the Central Asian jihadists that operate in Afghanistan are going to need some sort of, you know, release valve of a lot of their pent up, you know, aggression or, or desire to strike their home countries. Um, you know, and we're seeing this a little bit now with the Islamic State Khorasan claiming, you know, attacks on Uzbek or Tajik positions, um, firing rockets from Afghanistan into those respective borders. You know, this is going to be, I, I think, the long-standing challenge for AQ and, and AFPAC of handling these foreign jihadist groups within their sphere. Let's, let's be honest, a lot of these these Central Asian jihadist groups in Afghanistan are, you know, completely under the Al-Qaeda network. They are Al-Qaeda's ethnic battalions um, to a large degree. Some of them are probably less so. But regardless, AQ is going to have to play a balancing game of not wanting to piss off the Taliban, but also allowing the Central Asians to release enough steam that doesn't result in defections to the Islamic State who allow those aforementioned, you know, rocket attacks into Uzbek or Tajikistan. So that's going to be the biggest challenge, I think, going forward is how does AQ play that game of how do they allow, you know, all these Central Asians or Pakistanis to do what they need to do, but not 
face the wrath of the Taliban of, of cracking down on that. Yeah. And, you know, they, they also have an interest in the Taliban maintaining their safe havens for them because let's right. face it, these groups are now, they've been fighting. They've been fighting for decades. They now get a little time to refit, to regroup, to breathe right. a little bit, to maybe get some, you know, train those new recruits and, and think about their next steps. But once they start right. thinking about those next steps, there's going to be, need to be, you know, these guys join the fight. They join these groups to wage jihad. That's the, you know, that's their religious duty. That's how they're, that's what they're told they're there to do. And that's why they join. Um, you use the term, Caleb, uh, a relief valve. Um, and this is a common term that's also used by, um, with, with regards to Pakistan and its, um, the groups like Lashkari Taiba, the Pakistani jihadist groups, um, and also re- applies to the, the Afghan Taliban and Pakistani Taliban as well, which of course, you know, again, this is all sort of that AQ orbit or the AQ ally groups. And Pakistan is known when, you know, it starts when it's jihadists, local jihadists get a little bit uppity because remember members of the, and I mentioned this earlier, members of these groups, one day they, you know, guys will be a Lashkari Taiba. The next day they're joining Al Qaeda. And then the next day they're fighting for the Taliban. And the next then they're back in Lashkari Taiba. But they want to fight. And if Pakistan holds the reins too closely on, on Kashmir and Afghanistan isn't a place where these guys could fight, that sometimes that bleeds over into attacks into Pakistan. So Pakistan also likes to open up this relief valve to allow jihadists to go into Kashmir. Um, and train. And there's been, you know, reports of numerous training camps right along the border in Pakistan, occupied Kashmir, um, used by all of these groups. I remember one point in time, Indian intelligence said they had like something like charted like 70 camps. This was, uh, had to be a half, half a decade ago or so. Um, but those camps haven't gone anywhere. Pakistan will reinitiate, will open this relief valve at some point because, it doesn't like to have rest of jihadists within within its borders, and and, and if that allows Al Qaeda to go in there too, well, again, while they may not like Al Qaeda because of its independence, it you know better that they fight in Kashmir than they fight in Pakistan. And AQ is going to have to play this game itself in, in Afghanistan. I think if I were ISK, Islamic State, Khorasan, this is prime recruitment territory. You're going to be able to to take away people who want to do attacks against you know Uzbek, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, elsewhere by saying, "Hey, AQ is not going to allow you to do this. They need to they need to abide by their Taliban masters. Join us." And we've seen that happen to a to a degree already. I think one of the um, groups that has the biggest problems with this is the Turkestan Islamic Party or the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. Um, because of, same group, by the way, there's people out there who like to say they're different. Oh no, they're the same. Yeah, they're, just, I, I'm putting exactly both the out there just because they're known as two things, and people treat them as two things, and it's one and the same. They're cozying up to the Taliban's cozying up to China. Should, is a big has to be a big concern to TIP leadership. They're going to have to figure out ways the Taliban and Al Qaeda and the Turkestan Islamic Party leadership has to figure out a ways to keep those guys in the fight, but not piss off the Taliban by reinitiating jihad in China, which is what they ultimately want to do. Right. And we've perhaps already seen this, you know, faltering. Um, there's a, there's an analyst I want to shout out. His name's Lucas Weber. He does a, a good job of, of looking at, you know, the TIP and you know, not only TIP, but ISK's, you know, ethnic recruits, you know, Central Asian ethnic recruits. He's already documented, you know, several Uyghurs who, who have, you know, likely left TIP because of these issues. 
of they felt that they weren't going to be able to do what they wanted to do, IS allowed them that opportunity. You know, going forward, I, I think this is this is going to be a, a big issue for AQ to rein in all these Central Asian groups, and TIP is probably the most evident one that's going to that's going to be a struggle. Um, again, I just want to be clear that talking rank and file, I don't think that the TIP is overall Amir um, Abdul Haq Al Turkestani, who by the way sits on Al Qaeda's main Shura Council. Um, I don't think he'll defect, obviously, but it's, it's the rank and file that are going to be an issue for AQ and TIP. Yeah, it's a hard message for them. Um, you know, and I think what the leadership has to attempt to do is preach patience. Look how patient we were in Afghanistan. It worked. It takes time. It takes, you know, we need to secure this. Our base in Afghanistan will help us achieve victory and, you know, in, in Zhejiang, right? I mean, things of that nature, but those are hard messages for the, to internalize for the bloodthirsty jihad now crowd. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, th- I think that's, you know, th- I think that nicely, we've nicely kind of come full circle in explaining those challenges that exist for Al Qaeda. And then again, the Islamic State again on its side has to go, well, we've had this method, but what do we have to show for it today? You know, the Taliban, you know, and Al Qaeda, they have to show Afghanistan and Central Asia. We're hunted, you know, and another advantage that the, and that's, just gets back to the practicality, right. With, in that statement from Zawahiri, um, you know, is being willing to work with states, right. The Taliban took state aid from the Pakistanis. They took state aid from the Iranians to wage jihad against the Americans. And Al Qaeda knew this was happening and, and allowed it. And, you know, again, that could be, you know, but that also can work against them. The messaging from the Islamic state can be, see, look, they're tools of these foreign state, you know, uh, the, which, which it is. It very much is the, the argument of, of IS against AQ. Yep. So, you know, it's the interesting thing to watch in all this is to see, you know, how this messaging works, how it impacts the groups, but like, it's hard to argue against the the Al Qaeda brand uh, of success when you look at Afghanistan yeah. and Somalia and Mali and and and, and other places. It's it's. I think that's the the too long didn't read or too long didn't listen version of this podcast is that AQ is definitely way more successful than what some are probably believing or or stating, but yet they do have severe challenges that they they are facing right now and probably will face in the future. Doesn't mean that they are faltering to any huge degree as what some analysts might, you know, lead you to believe, but it's not to say that they aren't perfect or they are perfect. Yeah, that's that split between again, I go back to that being the singular greatest defeat or 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 for Al Qaeda was the split between Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. Right. And, and to be clear, there are, there are areas around the world where AQ absolutely did fail that we didn't mention. Right. Um a lot of a lot of Africa Especially Central and you know Mozambique, they failed. The, they absolutely failed in those regards, and the Islamic State took them up on it. You know, this this is an area where AQ could falter in the future. Um, but as of right now, as of again May twenty twenty two, I think AQ is in a much better position than than what some some believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can look at the at the Southeast Asia. I mean, I don't think Al Qaeda, but Nigeria. Sorry, Nigeria being another failure. Yep, absolutely. Of, of, yeah. Philippines and Indonesia. Okay. You know, look, yeah. they still have, you know, Jamaat al Islamiyah still exists to a degree, and there's some offshoots right. in the Islamic states in, in Philippines. And, but they lost to Abu Sayyaf. Yeah. Right. Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. Yeah. But like, you know, so again, it's, it, it's an ebb and flow, right? Does it, can they yeah. recruit, can they regroup? Can they, you know, 
No, and of course, like AQ's messaging isn't always, you know, successful either. You know, we talk about Kashmir, but they tried to incite Muslims in the Central African Republic uh, in 2014, 2015 at the height of, you know, CAR's violent civil war. And it was insanely violent, still is. But AQ tried to capitalize on it. AQ, even Zawahiri, made statements about the Muslims in CAR should rise up. They should join Islamic groups. They should start jihad in Central Africa. And it didn't work. You know, so this is there are times where AQ's messaging works. There are times where it doesn't. Yeah, and times where the Islamic State's messaging works, and I think that's a perfect example of it. Right? They've gotten a grip on the Central African Central African Republic. They got gripped on, I think, in Mozambique, and then you not not CAR. They do IS. I'm sorry, definitely has, uh, yeah. DRC, yeah, Democratic yeah. Republic of yeah. Congo. Yeah. My bad. Um, getting my uh, getting my African too many acronyms. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, I guess that just uh, just exposed my geographic challenges. Uh, in uh, no, this is my 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 bad. I have like such uh, I don't know if it's photographic memory, but like geographically, like I could look at a map and then just immediately remember it. So it's why I hate you and Tom. You guys with your your photographic memories, and me with my workman effort that has to constantly relook up things. It's it's quite maddening. So I, I love both I, love and hate. I do second guess myself all the time, though. Of like, am I remembering that correctly? And then I have to like go to Google Maps, and sure enough, I am. It's a little secret. Um, I created the Long War Journal literally as my notebook. I mean, uh, it's it's and, and I put little bookmarks in my brain, and I'm like, I know I wrote about that eight years ago, and I'll, I can go and find it. It's literally my journal, and yeah, obviously yours and Tom's and everyone else's um, that contribute, Joe's. That contributes, but that was the original purpose of me starting to write. Uh, you know, when I originally started doing this, was literally putting my thoughts on paper and being able to access them and kind of developed. Well, I'm glad you did. So, no, and I mean, not I'm, for my own selfish reasons, as you know, working for you for eight years, but also just the service you're providing for you know the community and field. Well, thank you, Caleb. Like, Caleb, you yeah. had mentioned to me the other day. It's been what eight years now? Yes, yeah, eight years. So that means in two more years, I've been. Working for you for ten years. Working, working with me, Caleb. It's, Sorry, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're I call you my boss, but you're—I yeah. guess you're not. No, Caleb. I, I, uh, you. Um, it's been a pleasure, um, and I hope there's another eight years and another eight years after that working with you. Um, yeah, it, inshallah. You know, there. It, it just to watch you grow over time and and and, and absorb and understand. This and again, I know your focus is on Africa, but whenever you know, when this, when I read these statements, I got to get Caleb on. I got Caleb knows this. You, 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 your ability to um, follow what's happening in other theaters. Um, sometimes Caleb will send me an email about something, and, and it's like, hey, Bill, did you see this? What's happening in Pakistan? And I'm like, damn it, I should have known that before him. And um, but uh, that's all on top of the ball. I just a caveat to all the listeners: I am terminally online. So it's just it's I need new hobbies. Listen, I, I my advice to you is at some point I was going to die because I was terminally online and I had to take a step back. I mean, literally my health was going to going into the toilet because I just was working nah, you know, anywhere from twelve to sixteen hour days and you know, start losing you know, when you're married, Caleb, you lose a little touch with your family. I I, I saw that coming and was like, I I gotta step back a little. But that's why I can rely on you now because I was trying to track everything in Africa and trying to track here. And that's why it's it's a, you know, one of the reasons why it's a yeah. pleasure to have you come. We definitely don't track everything around the world as closely as I do in Africa. I try to to read the news and like 
keep up with it, especially I mean, Twitter is such a good resource for that. But I, I, I like to say that I'm, um, you know, conversant in other yes. areas, I guess. Like I could probably play a game of Jeopardy, but that's about it. I wouldn't call myself quite as a, as a specialist as I am in Africa. Yeah, I'll, I'll, Jah- I'll take- Jihad is a specialist, I guess, but specifically to Africa. But I do have a decent grasp. I guess of elsewhere. I'll take your grasp of what's happening in Afghanistan and Pakistan or pick your theater over just about anyone out there. So, uh, thanks. That's high praise. No, listen, it's, uh, it's, it's well earned. So, all right, uh, Caleb, I think this is a great place to wrap it up. Thank you again for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. No, uh, listen, I, I'd have you on every episode if you, if you could, uh, but I know you got work to do. Thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.